Our scripture reading is from Paul's epistle to the Colossians. We're going to be reading in chapter 3, and just a few verses there. We'll be reading 12 through 17. 12 through 17. Put, then, put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the, rule, the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which, indeed, you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. So this evening we're going to look at three of the virtues that Paul here tells believers to put on. Kindness, humility, and meekness. This is about the kind of people that God is renewing us to be. We've seen in earlier passages in this letter that God has begun the renewal of the whole creation, which includes creating a, re- a renewed human race in Jesus Christ. Verse 10 of chapter 3 speaks about the new humanity, which is being renewed after the image of its creator. Human beings were originally created in God's image. And in his plan of salvation, God is renewing the followers of Jesus in his image. This sets the Christian life in the framework of the renewal of the creation. One of the wonderful things about this is that as images of God, we are to reflect God's glory. That's what images do. They reflect that which they image. To the degree that we are like God, we reflect God's glory. And God's purpose is to fill the whole earth with people who reflect his glory. The beginning, God told his original image bearers to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God's original plan was to fill the earth with image bearers who reflected his glory And that is still his plan. When God says in a number of different places in the Old Testament that the earth will one day be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, at least part of what he has in mind is that he's going to fill the whole creation, the whole of the earth with image bearers who reflect his glory. It's in the light of that that we have to understand Paul's exhortation here for us to put on these character traits, such as the ones that we're going to look at this evening, kindness, humility, 
and meekness. These are ways in which we image God. These characteristics are ways that we reflect the glory of God. Whenever we think about human beings as they ought to be, we are thinking about how we reflect God's perfections. Jesus is the perfect image of God, and he is also the perfect human being. And so these character traits that Paul is urging us to put on are ways in which we can reflect the glory of God in our lives. Now, one of the reasons that I'm taking the time to look at each of them carefully is that each of them has something to contribute to what it means to our understanding of what it means to be renewed in the image of God. And this, in turn, refers to uh, what it means to be truly and fully human. This is what salvation is about. God is making us more like Jesus, who is the perfect human being. The more we are like Jesus, the closer we are to being what we are created and recreated to be as human beings. These characteristics are characteristics of the fullness of human life. And one of the things that this list of characteristics conveys is that human interactions with one another are very, very rich when we relate to each other as we ought. Each of these virtues teaches us something of the richness of the way in which we are to interact with one another. Each of these words conveys something of the beauty of God's character and the beauty of human relationships as God intends them to be. So we have a list of words and phrases here, each of us, each of which tells us something about the beautiful way that we are to live together as images of God, as the new humanity. So our first word today is kindness. Now, kindness is closely related to compassion, but it's not exactly the same, which, of course, is why Paul puts it in here when he has just mentioned compassion. We are to put on compassionate hearts, but then he says also put on kindness, and he's not saying the same thing in two different ways. By figuring out where compassion and kindness are similar and where they are different, we add a little bit to our understanding of the beautiful way that God is calling us to relate to one another. So compassion has a narrower focus than kindness. If you are being compassionate, you are being kind. But not every expression of kindness is compassion. Compassion is kindness to those who are suffering to a greater or less extent, but kindness is also directed to those who are not suffering. Not all people that we interact with are, are suffering. You don't have compassion toward another believer who's in a very happy place in his or her life, but it does make sense to be kind to a person who is in a very happy place in his or her life. So what exactly is kindness? We've obviously have a general idea, but we want to understand as clearly as we can, as precisely as we can, what Paul is telling us to put on here. And the next step to get to that precision is to focus on the meaning of the Greek word that is translated as kindness. 
Now, I need to say that in a good translation like the ESV, which is a good, uh, responsible translation, we can trust that the English word is a good translation of the Greek word or the Hebrew word, as, as the case may be, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. But still, it is of some value to consider the Greek word, and that's why they send us the seminary, or one of the reasons. And just consider how the Greek word is used, especially in the New Testament, but also there are wonderful studies of each of these New Testament words uh, that look at the way that word is used in the, language, in the Greek language beyond Uh, the New Testament during that time period. So the Greek word, as it's used in the New Testament especially, can mean either goodness or kindness. It's translated in those two different ways. It's often used of God towards sinners. So Romans 2.4 says uh, that God's kindness, and that's the same word in the Greek, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And then Titus 3, 4 refers to the goodness, and goodness there is the same word in the Greek. <clears throat> so the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. So the idea of kindness here then, when it is used of God, has to do with his grace to sinners. He does good to sinners who do not deserve it. He's kind to sinners who do not deserve it. But the Greek word is, that is translated kindness in our text is uh, describing, first of all, here, how humans are to interact and relate to one another. And here the idea is not only grace, uh, where that is called for, that certainly is, is one way of being kind, but also uh, goodness, mildness, generosity. In other words and phrases, uh, that come out in the, in the word studies of the way that the, the Greek word was used during that time are things like concern for others, willingness to be of service, being considerate, benevolent, being warm-hearted, gentle, and sympathetic. So our English word kindness is a pretty good translation. Kindness has to do with relating to other people in a good way, with care, with gentleness, with interest, with warmness. It may be an expression of compassion, but often it is expressed in situations where compassion is not called for. So it's things like being thoughtful, being welcoming, is caring, showing interest in someone else's life, treating others in a way that shows that they are respected and valued. The opposite of kindness is harshness, Indifferent, showing a lack of respect and not paying attention. Here's a few examples of kindness in action. A genuine compliment. A word of encouragement. Listening carefully to what others say. Taking their opinion seriously. Being sensitive to the feelings of others. May sometimes be expressed as a, a word of warning or rebuke. That can be kindness. But if it is kindness, the warning or rebuke will be expressed with as much care and gentleness and sensitivity as is possible. So kindness is relating to other people in such a way that they feel blessed by the experience. And Paul here is calling us to grow 
in relating to other people with warmth, with care, with helpfulness, with encouragement. It's helpful to think of Jesus here. The word kindness isn't used of him directly, but the idea is certainly there in the way that the New Testament describes him. We see him giving himself to heal the sick, to preach the good news. We see it in the content of his preaching and teaching. He cares about people's anxieties, for instance. He came to serve, came to heal. He was gentle. He had time for little children. So God here is calling us to put on kindness. If we are believers, he's at work in us, renewing us after the image of God and of Christ. But his work of renewing involves us putting on the grace of kindness. And so we are to think about what kindness is, which is why we've taken this time to reflect on it. We are to think of our own lives in the light of what kindness means, and then seek to grow in this area. So we all need to ask ourselves, am I a kind person? When I interact with other people, do they feel positive about the interaction? Or do they feel that they've been brushed off or disrespected or not heard? God's call to put on kindness means that we need to examine how we come across to other people. Notice tendencies to treat others unkindly and seek to grow in becoming a more kind person. Next, we have humility. Here is a helpful definition of the the Greek word. Uh, Humility is the disposition of valuing or assessing oneself appropriately, especially in the light of one's sinfulness or creatureliness. Let me read that again. Humility is the disposition of valuing or assessing oneself appropriately, especially in the light of one's sinfulness or creatureliness. So humility is not thinking that you are a nothing, or that you are insignificant, or that you have no gifts, that you have no abilities. It's thinking of yourself accurately in the light of the Bible. Romans 12, 3, Paul gives a definition of humility, although he doesn't use that particular word there, but this is what he says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And In that passage, he goes on to speak about spiritual gifts, which have to do with God-given abilities that are to be used in the ministry of the church. So it's not humility to deny your gifts. It's not humility to think that you are worthless, to have feelings of low self-esteem. Humility is not self-loathing. Paul says that we are to think of ourselves with sober judgment, so thoughtfully, soberly, in the light of the Word of God. We're not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but we're not to think of ourselves more lowly than we ought to think either. So we're aimed to, for accuracy in the light of the Bible. The first requirement for humility is to recognize that we are creatures made by God. 
It's one of the more, most fundamental truths of the Bible, of existence. God is God and we are not God. God made us. We are accountable to him. We exist for him. Psalm 10.4 says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. That's the starting place for humility. God is God. We are not God. We are created for God uh, by God. The second fundamental requirement of humility is to recognize that we are sinful. And certainly this is a key part of the biblical teaching that is intended to inform us how we should think about ourselves. So Paul reminds us in Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. The Bible teaches that apart from Christ, we are guilty of breaking God's law, that we have sinful hearts, that we are worthy of death. Now here I need to make a distinction between a couple of words that are often used in the context of Humility, that they sound similar, but they mean very different things. I said earlier that humility does not mean that we should think of ourselves as worthless. That is a profoundly unbiblical way to think of ourselves, if we think of ourselves as worthless. But we are unworthy because of our sins. We deserve nothing but death and hell. Because we are sinners, we are worthy of death. We are not worthy of even being alive or of any of the blessings of this life. We can never say to God that we deserve anything, and that includes even life itself. We are unworthy of anything but death and punishment. The other side of that truth is that every good thing in our lives comes to us by God's grace. If we are saved, it is because of God's grace in Christ. If we are not saved, anything that's good in our lives comes from what we call God's common grace. So humility involves acknowledging that we are unworthy sinners, but we are valuable. Humility involves recognizing that we and all people are valuable because God made us. He made us in his image, and he gave Jesus for our salvation. As human beings made in God's image, we have great value. And part of humility is recognizing that that is true of everyone else as well. So humility includes understanding that we are no more valuable than any other human being. One of the great expressions of pride is a conviction that we are somehow better than others. Every single person in the world is made in God's image, and because of that, no one is more valuable than any other. Think back to uh, verse 11 of Colossians 3 that we looked at a few weeks ago. Here there is not Greek or Jew or circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, These are all distinctions by which people devalue one another. And Paul is saying that those distinctions are not negatively relevant in the new humanity. And if they are not negatively relevant in the new humanity, they should not be negatively relevant at all. Humility means 
thinking of others as being as valuable as you are. It also means that we can't take credit for our gifts and abilities and opportunities and anything along those lines. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 and 7, Paul warns the Corinthians not to be puffed up in favor of one against another. There you see comparison. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So we're not to be puffed up. We're not to be boastful. God has made us all different. We have nothing we did not receive in terms of giftedness, in terms of opportunities. We can be thankful for whatever God has given us, but we are to live with the awareness that our gifts and our abilities and our opportunities come from God and that we are to use them for his glory and not our own. Humility requires that we do not think of ourselves more highly than we ought because we cannot take credit for any of our abilities. So humility is about thinking appropriately about ourselves in relation to God We are his creatures. We are worthy of death because of our sins. But at the same time, we are valuable because we are valuable to God. In relation to others, humility means thinking we are equal to others as far as value is concerned. And we cannot take credit for the gifts and abilities that God has given us. I have not yet considered humility as an attribute of God. That's a very interesting, surprising, and fruitful topic. On the one hand, God can neither be humble or proud because he is perfect. And if humility is thinking appropriately about yourself, then God must think very highly of himself. He must think of himself as worthy of the worship of all of his creatures. So God is not being proud when he seeks his own glory because it is appropriate that he seeks his own glory. He is worthy of it. But the Bible doesn't use humility to refer to God, but it does use it to refer to Jesus. And that opens up a very amazing and profound insight into God's glory because Jesus is God and he reveals what God is like. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 Paul writes of Jesus that though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in a human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It's a very, very profound passage for a number of different reasons, not the the least of which is what it teaches us about God. And it teaches us that by becoming a man, God humbled himself for our salvation. God took the form of a servant in Jesus. God reveals himself in Jesus. And one of the things that he reveals is that he humbled himself in Jesus for our 
salvation. It's interesting that in Mark 10, 42 and following, Jesus teaches that true greatness is expressed in service to others. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We can't say that Jesus served only in his human nature, but not in his divine nature. Jesus, the God-man, became the servant belongs to true greatness, that in Jesus, God came to serve, especially by giving his life a ransom for many. Now, that is an awesome thought. There is a sense in which God is humble, because in Jesus Christ, he became a man, and he humbled himself to be a servant to the point of giving his life a ransom for many. That belongs to the greatness of God. This belongs to the glory of God. And it is a very powerful motive for us to humble ourselves to serve others. And that's how Paul applies that idea in Philippians 2 by saying that Believers should show humility by counting others more significant than themselves. That's what we do when we serve others humbly. And that's what Jesus models for us. So hear the word of God calling us to humility. Let us consider how we think of ourselves in relationship to God and in relationship to other people, and seek to put on this characteristic of humility, this characteristic of the new man, we need to ask ourselves, when I think of other people, are there some people that I consider to be below me? Do I feel superior to others? When I consider myself in relationship to to other people, am I humble? And finally, this evening, we consider meekness. God, through the Apostle Paul, is calling us to put on meekness. Now, this idea of meekness in the Bible has a number of facets. It has the idea of submission to the will of God in difficult circumstances. That idea is mostly found in the Old Testament, where it refers to the poor who wait on the Lord to deliver them. So Isaiah 11.4 says, but with righteousness he shall judge, he's talking about God, with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. The meek of the earth deal with hardships like poverty and injustice, trusting in God that he in his time will deliver them. Peter describes Jesus in this way without using the word meekness, but that's what he's talking about. He says in 1 Peter 2, 23, about Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. 
when he suffered. He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So there is this idea of suffering persecution and not lashing out, but trusting God to vindicate. Jesus' call in the Sermon on the Mount to turn the other cheek falls into that category of meekness. New Testament also uses the, the, the idea of meekness to describe how we are to receive God's word. James 1.21 speaks of those who, quote, receive with meekness the implanted word. So meekness has to do with our attitude to the word of God, which would include the preaching of the word of God. But the Greek word that's translated meekness in our text is often translated as either gentle or humble in other places in the New Testament. And we take all these ideas together. We think of someone who is submissive to God and gentle towards others. The word is used of Jesus a couple of times, and they are both significant. In in Matthew 11.29, Jesus refers to himself as gentle. There's the the word meekness is there, the, the, the Greek word. As gentle or meek and lowly in heart. The other significant reference to Jesus in connection with meekness is Matthew 21, 5, which is a quotation from Zechariah prophesying about Jesus, quote, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. And the word humble there is the same word that's translated meekness in our text. And this one is very interesting because the point of that verse, Jesus on a donkey, coming humbly, the point of that verse is that Jesus pursues his kingdom in a gentle way rather than in an aggressive and warlike way. He's not on a war horse, he's on a donkey. A couple of helpful references that refer to meekness of Christians are 1 Galatians 6.1, which says, if brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of meekness or gentleness. And First uh, Peter 3, 4, which says, speaks of the adorning of godly women that, that should be, quote, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle or meek spirit and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So meekness is a, combination of a submissive attitude toward God and a gentle spirit toward people. So think of Jesus as gentle and lowly in heart. Think of Jesus as humble and on a donkey rather than on a war horse. Think of the spiritual restoring of someone caught in a transgression in the spirit of gentleness. Think of a godly woman with a gentle and quiet spirit. Together, these references gives us a pretty good idea of what Paul is telling us when he calls us to put on meekness. There is in the idea of meekness the idea of not being pushy or aggressive in our interactions with others. It's not being defensive. It's not always being right. In the situations where Christians 
or taking one another to secular court, Paul appeals to them to turn to wise people within the Christian community to settle the dispute. But he also says in that context, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? That's 1 Corinthians 6, 7. So that's meekness. Some of the characteristics of love that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 13, that they describe meekness. We could say that meekness is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It bears all things, endures all things. Meekness is about putting greater value on peace and harmony than on insisting on one's own interests or opinions. And so the question comes, are we meek? We've seen there's a different, different nuances to the concept of meekness. There's a combination of submissiveness and gentleness. And that suggests the attitude that is willing to be mild and accommodating in order to promote peace and unity in the body. And this fits well with what Paul is calling for, the first part of Philippians 2. He says that Philippians should be, quote, of the same mind, having same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And what he describes next here is meekness. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So let's consider our lives and the way that we relate to others in the light of this virtue of meekness. Are we gentle? And more, are we willing to be mild and accommodating as a way to, produce, to promote peace and harmony in our relationships with others and in the body in general? So we have three virtues to think about, kindness, humility, and meekness. God is not calling us to grow in these areas with a heavy hand, with harsh words. Instead, he's calling us, he's urging us, in the light of the new humanity, to grow in the wonderful traits that we will one day fully embody. Just think of how wonderful it will be when we are fully perfected and everyone is kind and humble and meek. That kind of relating together is what reflects God's glory and pleases him. Just think of how pleased God will be when he sees his people living together in perfect harmony and unity Think of the blessedness that we already experience because of what God has already worked in us. And so let the beauty of the goal and the hope of living it in perfection draw us into the self-examination and the changes and the practicing that will enable us to put on kindness, humility, and meekness. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you and we thank you for the beautiful characteristics that 
are in you and that you have displayed to us in our Lord Jesus Christ and also in the lives of your people. We thank you for the vision of the new humanity that you are calling us toward. We thank you that by your grace you have begun that work in us and that you are renewing us in your image. And Lord, we pray that all the various encouragements that come to us as these truths come to us immersed in gospel, in the gospel, in your whole plan of salvation. This is not something that you're calling us to do in order to be saved. You address us as chosen and dearly beloved. This is what you are are calling us to do as those who are saved, who are loved, in whom you are working. And this is a picture that you hold before us of something that is beautiful. Lord, we pray that through our meditation on it that you would increase our, our desire to grow in these areas. That you would help us to do the, the self-examination and the, the changes that are necessary for us to grow. Lord, we ask for your blessing on all this. In Jesus' name, amen.